What's up, friends? Glad you're joining me on the Challenging Conversations show brought to you by the Edify Podcast Network. Challenging Conversations is designed to empower Christians to be bold and not afraid to jump into controversial topics with someone who might not agree with what you believe. If you've been paying any attention these days, you've noticed that there is a cosmic power raging between two opposing worldviews. On the one hand, you have those who believe truth is absolute, that there is objective morality, and you can see that clearly in the foundational teachings of biblical Christianity. On the other, more of a secular worldview holds that truth is relative, that individuals and also autonomous societies derive their own set of ideas and social constructs. But which of the two worldviews is true? Is truth simply a matter of opinion or is there more to truth than just one's personal opinion? That's what we're going to seek to answer on the show today. And to help us do just that, I'd like to welcome to the show a longtime friend of mine and the president of Summit Ministries, Jeff Myers, who just released his brand new book, Truth Changes Everything, How People of Faith Can Transform the World in Times of Crisis. Jeff, my friend, thanks for coming on Challenging Conversations. Jason, I've been looking forward to this conversation. I always enjoy the conversations we have together. Now we get to have it with our friends. Yeah, I mean, it, it. You know, just to let people know, I mean, you and I have have talked about so many different things, and one thing that I have always appreciated about you is just the vulnerability that you've expressed uh, to me as your friend, but also as colleagues that we're here to sharpen one another in the faith. And so, when you started to come up with this concept on truth changes everything. And in a sense, it's kind of like, you know, you think, oh, another book on moral relativism or, or debunking truth again, you know, and subjectivity and objectivity. And do we need another book? But the more you started to tell me about the concept of how you were addressing this situation, it really piqued my interest. And so I'm excited that people are now going to get a hold of this book and hopefully impact a lot of people in their lives. So let me just ask you real quickly, as we get uh, started in this interview, what made you and again, as a president of Summit Ministries, running a biblical worldview ministry, you've written tons of books already, um, which I've read, by the way, all of them. I just want you to know that. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> kudos, kudos to me. Not until next yeah. week, so you're way ahead. <laughs> That's right. Kudos <laughs> to me. Uh, how many other faculty members can say that, Jeff? But but so I'm excited to, to, to continue to dig through uh, this one, um, and I've been enjoying it already. But what made you want to write a book about truth changes everything? Well, Jay, it's a curveball uh, in this kind of an interview because it it wasn't necessarily the problem right. of the loss of truth. It was a diagnosis of cancer, mm -hmm. and I I found myself sitting in the doctor's office hearing him say, "Well, look, uh, this is it's going to be, you know, we have a good chance of beating this," and he's talking, and but I I can hardly hear him because all I'm thinking is. Wow, what about all those road trips that mm. I thought Stephanie and I would take together? What, you know, I want to be able to hold my grandbabies. And it was this moment of realizing that my life may be a lot shorter than I thought. And have you ever wondered, yeah. you know, what would you what would you write if you knew it was the last letter you could write to a person? <laughs> what would you say if you're having coffee with one of your kids and you thought it was the last time you would ever get to talk to them? And so in a way, 
Uh, that's what this was for me. What book would I write if I knew it might be the last book that I ever get to write? Mm-hmm. So I decided I would write on truth. This is the yeah. number one issue of our day. I was visiting with the founder of our ministry, Summit Ministries, and I asked him, what would you communicate? And he said, stand for truth. It is the thing that is worth standing for. Mm. So that's how sort of how it came about. Now, I've had a good uh, prognosis. I've been in remission from cancer now for several months, but that same motivation is still there Mm -hmm. because this is a central message. We cannot survive as a church. We cannot survive as a civilization unless unless we get this one right. Yeah. And see, that's what I love about it because obviously I knew that. And just to let our audience understand that this wasn't just a philosophical undertaking, right? Right. Like when you look at the, yeah. a lot of the work you've done and uh, in, in revising uh, Dr. David Noble's work, understanding the times to understanding the faith, understanding the culture. Um, and yet there, there, there's pointed personal storylines engaging as you're sharing the faith and being a light and witness to people around you. But to your point, as you were, you know, sitting there on numerous occasions in the midst of COVID of all times with this right. prognosis yeah. and not sure uh, how you were going to deal or, you know, uh, overcome it. Um, and I remember even seeing pictures of you losing your hair and losing weight and, um, you know, and it was just amazing to see, you know, and we all know the big C word when that comes knocking with certain family members, you know, two years ago, my brother passed away of cancer. So I understand the heartache of seeing a loved one die to cancer, but in your case, seeing also the victory of Christ in your life, how you grew in your faith. And so out of it springs board this book. And hopefully what people can, can get from it is not just a, you know, grappling with what truth is, but the difference it makes in one's life entirely. So I think that you're dead on in that. So let's just do this because it's always important to clarify terms because we do understand based on a lot of the studies that you put in the book that Summit's been a part of. We've seen if people are familiar with Barna, even Pew Research, and even if you go to Impact 360, everyone has their independent studies. But I think the consensus is in, and that is we are finding that people who profess or self-proclaimed Christians do not believe that truth is absolute. So as we have this conversation, let's just be clear. Let's give the audience a logically and consistently sound definition of what truth is so we can then answer the question, why then truth changes everything? Yeah, well, well, Jason, the truth, the definition of truth is what actually is. Mm -hmm. What is so in reality. John 8, 32, Jesus said, if you follow my teachings, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus there uh, in the translation of his words, he probably spoke in Hebrew, but the translation into Greek is the word aletheia. It means reality. In other words, Jesus is not just saying, if you follow my teachings, you will know your truth. Mm -hmm. He's not just saying, if you follow my teachings, you'll feel better about yourself. He's saying, if you follow my teachings, you'll know what is real. And Knowing reality is the first step in being set free. Jason, uh, one of my sons worked as a drug addiction counselor, and he would he would tell me, look, the very first thing you have to do is grapple with the reality mm. of the situation. As long as you are pretending that something is okay that's not, 
as long as you're pretending to live in a world that doesn't actually exist, you can never get well. Mental health professionals will tell you the same thing. You can never be healed of a mental health issue until you grapple with what's actually real. And yet, as you pointed out, people today say, well, truth doesn't, capital T, truth, that doesn't actually exist. Truth is up to the individual. And then we wonder why 75% of young adults say, I have no sense of purpose that gives me meaning in life. You know, 53% say, I regularly struggle with anxiety and depression. A third say they don't even know what gender they are. Mm -hmm. it, and all of a sudden you think, if we create this kind of fantasy world, we can't expect to survive individually, not to mention a civilization. Mm -hmm. I mean, Will Durant, the great historian, said no civilization is ever conquered from without until it has destroyed itself from within. So we find ourselves on a precipice at this point in time. Yeah. You're listening to the Edify Podcast Network. We'll be right back. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app. This is the Edify Podcast Network. Welcome back. As a president of Summit Ministries, where you guys do a lot of serving, right? And you hired outside firms to be objective, to get, you know, some of this raw data and you survey it. You, I mean, you're literally surveying the surveys. You're, you're looking at the data itself. What are you finding then as to why we are so anxious then? I mean, I get it where you're saying people, are, a lot of people are rejecting truth. They don't believe it to be absolute, right? They're denying objective morality. They think the truth is relative to themselves. Just look within, you know, you'll find truth there. You know, Oprahism, transcendentalism, whatever you want to fill in the blank, right? This new age spirituality, a lot of stuff that you teach at Summit, you know, to combat a lot of these false lies. A lot of it you see within progressive Christianity as well. So we see these trends that are happening, right, Jeff? But why are so many people, especially if you look at millennials in Generation Z, you know, Gen Z generation, you know, from after 2000, about 2015, 2016, why are so many of them abandoning, if you will, the belief system that truth is absolute? Or like you said, telling it like it is. Why are they rejecting that? Where is that coming from? You know, Jason, I, I can't speak to everybody in the whole world on this, but I'll speak as an American right now. I think there are two things going on. Number one, it's what we've been taught to do. And number two, we think it's the American thing to do. Mm. We've been taught to do it by teachers who say, well, you know, reality isn't actually knowable by us. All we can know are our social constructions of our own experiences. And that has been the dominant teaching at the university level for at least since I went to college, which is a long time ago. <laughs> and then, uh, don't say how long yeah, you know, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> the second thing is, I think people think it's the American thing to do. It's all about personal freedom. You can't tell me what to do. I'm an American. Mm. And all of a sudden, people think, they, they, they think that they can turn inside of themselves to find the truth. But there's no area of life where that actually works. Outside uh, my window here, if I turned my camera around, you would see a mountain called Red Mountain. Uh, Red Mountain is in 
uh, Pike National Forest. Pike National Forest is huge. Mm -hmm. You can head out on the trails there and you will very quickly become lost unless you have a topographical map and a compass. Now, if you if you take the compass and say, you know, the best way to use a compass is to make sure the red needle's always pointing toward me. That's the way I know I'm not lost. No, that's the way to guarantee that you will be lost, right? Yeah. You have to make sure that the needle is pointing to something that is objectively outside of yourself, in this case, magnetic north. Now, it's not a, it's not a perfect guide, but with a topographical map and a compass used properly, you can find your way in any wilderness area. If you're using the compass by trying to point to yourself, you'll always be lost. So where do we get the idea that you can look inside of yourself to figure out what direction you should go in life? Mm. Yeah. So again, let's, let's further that. Cause that's interesting. Cause of what happens a lot of times people say, oh, well, you guys are doing Western thinking now. Like you're, you're just too binary or it doesn't work that way. The spiritual realm, whatever they define that to be right. Um, isn't like you just mentioned. You can't just do a compass to the soul, Jeff. How do you respond to that? Because we know that to be true. Like you said, have a topographical map, you know, following the compass appro appropriately within the laws of physics and then, you know, properly navigating yourself, you know, from being lost to being found. So how do you refute somebody when they say you can't apply that type of logic or truth to the spiritual well, there are people who try to distinguish between the spiritual and the material. Usually, and so there are a couple of different scenarios here. Usually, when somebody's trying to separate the spiritual from the material, what they're actually saying is the material is all that exists. Mm -hmm. The spiritual world is an illusion. And so just like nobody, if you were to take LSD, nobody else can join you on your trip. Uh, you're, you know, it's all you. It's the, your illusion is yours because it doesn't actually exist. Then there are other people on the other side who say, well, the spiritual world is all there is. The material world is an illusion. So you can't be guided by anything outside of you. All right. So you, you've got two different kinds of people. You want to first figure out which one you're talking to when you're having the conversation. Right. But I would usually take the conversation like this. Say, do you, would you agree that there are scientific facts? So for, if I were to say water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit at sea level, it would not be a reasonable thing for you to say, well, you know, keep your opinions to yourself or, or how dare you impose your views on me, right? Yeah. Because it's something that we can either, we can know to be factual or not. If I were to say Martin Luther King was killed on April 4th, 1968, it wouldn't be appropriate for somebody to say, well, maybe that's true in your culture, but in mine, it's different. No, that's a historical fact. We know there are scientific facts. We know there are historical facts. We also know, and this is more controversial, but it's equally true, there are moral facts. There is a knowable difference between the two statements I'm about to give you. Statement A, it is always good to care for abandoned puppies. Statement B, it is always good to torture abandoned puppies. Mm -hmm. Okay, There is a knowable difference between those two statements. It's not just a matter of words, me using words however I want. There's a knowable difference right. between those two things. So there are scientific facts, there are historical facts, there are moral facts. So what exactly are you referring to if you say that, you know, my truth is up to me individually? Yeah. Usually what they're saying is my own 
uh, purpose in life is up to me individually, or my own feelings about my value are up to me individually. But even those things aren't really aren't really true. But that's sort of how I would approach the conversation. Yeah, no, I think that's well said. And hopefully our audience understood that. And then again, if they didn't, because you're so brilliant, so smart, Jeff, they have to rewind it and listen to it five <laughs> different times, right? I was actually taking notes as I was listening to you. Um, so that leads me to the next thing I, I want to kind of unpack a little bit further. Uh, and again, we do this not to be belittling, like a gotcha, you know, to somebody who it's not like they go around call themselves a moral relativist, but they would probably uh, say that they are a moral relativist, but they're not probably wearing a T-shirt. So when I pose this to right. you, as you were just alluding to a minute ago, to help people understand where people are trying to, you know, distinguish between the material and immaterial, but most of those people are naturalists. They, they deny the immaterial. Uh, some people have different viewpoints of what you say, the spiritual realm. So on the surface of it, when you go back to telling it like it is, right? Um, simply put, or as I say, what is true about truth? And we talk about that it's transcendental, that it's real, that it's universal, and that it's exclusive. So it applies to all people at all times and all circumstances, right? Truth never changes. So how would you then, when somebody, because we, we, one thing that you mentioned in the book and, and we're talking about even right now, and you do hear quite a lot, actually. People just pay close attention. They'll hear it a lot, especially in a lot of talk shows that speak your own truth, right? Speak your truth. That's your truth. Speak your truth. So on one hand, what I want to do is start with what are those apparent or obvious contradictions when people are saying that? And then what I want mm -hmm. to do is from that, let's go a little bit deeper, deeper because you're right. I do believe as you're talking about disorders, uh, anxieties, issues, anxiety disorders, depression that potentially and can and has lead to suicidal thoughts and people attempting suicide and sadly have been successful um, in that. Yeah. So we see that this does matter, but on the philosophical level, level let's first address the, these obvious contradictions. So when someone's saying, hey, speak your own truth, what should a Christian say in return to that? Not a gotcha, but just a response to that to kind of not put that person in their place, but to, to get them to think that what they're saying is actually a contradiction. Hmm. I, I think, Jay, you, you, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. Right. If, it, if somebody says, well, what's important is that you speak your truth, they might be actually saying it's important that you speak the truth and illustrate it with your own personal story. Mm -hmm. That might be possible. Yeah. Some people who say, speak your truth, I know are people who actually believe in the truth. So they aren't just making stuff up, but they're just saying it in a way that maybe they, it's probably not appropriate if they really thought about it. But there are people who say, there is no truth out there that is knowable by us. So you can't know it you just speak your truth, your, you give your perceptions. And the answer, the, the first thing you've got to do is ask, what do you mean by truth? Mm -hmm. Now think about this, Jason. If, if, if I were to say I speak my truth, I'm assuming that truth actually means something to you or I wouldn't bother to even say the statement, speak, sure. I speak my truth. Yeah. Second of all, I believe that some, for some reason it's valuable for me to speak about my truth 
even if there is no such thing as truth. Why would anybody else care? <laughs> why should anybody else care? If it's just my perceptions, if I said, oh, look, uh, you know where I am right now, there are clouds in the sky. You'd be like, so what? I mean, why? who cares? Mm. Who cares what life is like where you live? It's not relevant to me. I only speak my truth. You see, as soon as you take that idea of speak my truth and apply it to anything important, it starts to break down. You can't say, well, I speak my truth about how much I pay in taxes. No, you don't, <laughs> unless you want to go to jail. You, I, I speak my truth. You say that what I did was unjust, but in my truth, it's not unjust. Oh, well, if the law says that it is and you're convicted by a court, you're going to jail. Uh, you can't have fracking and non-fracking at the same time in the same way as far in energy policy. You can't have a 30% tax and a 75% tax and the same kind of tax in the same way. Uh, you can't have abortion all the way through nine months of pregnancy and not abortion through nine months of pregnancy at the same time in the same way. As soon as you start to apply that thinking to anything else, it starts to break down. Why? This is really important. Because we begin our mm -hmm. we begin our whole conversation with words. Mm -hmm. We're assuming that when we use words, that these words actually refer to something. Otherwise, we wouldn't bother to even utter them in the presence of other people. Yeah. So there's this huge contradiction that you end up in the middle of if you say, the only thing I can do is speak my truth. Mm. Yeah, well said. It reminds me when you're saying that, which I appreciate the, you know, where we have to distinguish because like some, just some of people's way of talking, like I was in a, in you know, recent event where we were doing a Q and A and somebody was shy and wanting to present, right? You could tell them they're holding back. And this one young guy was like, dude, speak your truth, man. Like what he was saying was, hey, just let it out. Whatever you have to ask or say, just say it. So he wasn't saying, hey, man, speak your personal preference, you know, of truth, you know, whatever. It you was could just, just as easily have said, speak your opinion. Yeah, just, and yeah. that would be a totally legitimate totally, yeah. way to phrase it. But I even I understood what he was saying and I kind of liked what he was getting at because every, and everybody did. So obviously there's going to be some limbo, some conversation, you know, some language that's going to be used. Um, and so we get that. But what we're just speaking to is the person who believes that you determine your own truth, your own path. But like you're saying is, but you're not being consistent. You're borrowing Right. In order to deny truth, you have to affirm it. I'll, I mean, I go way back when I was in seminary back in the day with Dr. Norman Geiser. And I remember with his pointed finger, it always like, uh, you know, you got to use truth to deny truth. And what does that make you a liar? But if you know you're a liar, you have to know what a truth is. You know what I mean? He just, and the common sense of logic just made, yeah. it was so, it was funny. It was like comical, um, you know, but the sad reality is, and we see it all the time is people have become in you know, like entrapped Jeff by this, you know? And so on one hand, you got people, they believe this because they don't want to surrender. They don't want to be submissive. They don't want to have to obey, you know, a higher being, i.e. God, the God of the Bible, right? Um, and so that's why they believe truth to be relative, whether it be like the Huxley brothers or whatever, um, you know, hedonistic in their belief systems. But there are a segment of young people today where they are in a social moral crisis for buying into this nonsense that within yeah. themselves, they can find the remedy, the solution 
to all of life's problems, whether it be in relationships, like have sex, it's your truth, it's your body, determine whatever gender and explore it and you're free. But like you said, if you don't face what reality is, you're not truly free. So how have we seen this collapse, you know, taking place in our culture today affected uh, people and not receiving the gospel? Hmm. Well, let me, let me just start by, because I haven't, we haven't been on the show together before. I'm coming from a Christian worldview. Mm -hmm. My faith is based on Jesus Christ. Um, I believe that my faith is a justifiable, true belief. And I believe that it doesn't just apply to me personally. It affects everything. What, what I believe about God affects what I believe about what's actually real. What I believe about what's real affects what I believe about what's right and wrong, mm-hmm. which affects what I believe makes a good society. And that applies to sociology and psychology and economics and everything else. So that's the perspective I'm coming from. The interesting thing about a Christian worldview that's not true of a lot of other world, not uh, not true of any other worldview that I'm aware of, is that truth is personal. Mm. In other words, the, the claim, the truth claim, is not just here is a set of logical propositions demonstrating that truth exists. Nor is it just here is a mathematical model that corresponds to reality demonstrating that truth exists. Hmm. It says that truth is a person. Yeah. Truth Amen. is Jesus. Right. And when you start with that, which is the consistent message of the New Testament, I mean, from Matthew all the way to Revelation, uh, uh, John John the Baptist, when John, the apostle John was writing about John the Baptist, said that John said, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God, referring to Jesus. That's the consistent message throughout Scripture. And it's interesting that when uh, a guy named uh, Philip was called by Jesus Mm -hmm. to be one of his disciples. He went to his buddy, Nathaniel, and he said, uh, we have found the one that Moses was writing about in the law. And so did the prophets. And Nathaniel didn't believe it. Who is it? Well, it's it's Jesus, son of Joseph from from Nazareth. Well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He asked. He didn't believe it. But interesting what Philip said that all of the Old Testament was also talking about Jesus. Now, that's the testimony of Scripture. That's the testimony of a Christian worldview. So what happens when people deny that? Sometimes they make things coldly logical. Have you ever had somebody say to you, well, I'm just telling you the brutal truth? Usually they don't really care about the truth. They're just wanting to be brutal and let themselves get away with it. Uh, Other people say there's no such thing as truth. But that's unkind as well. I mean, there's nobody who's more apathetic to the concerns of others than someone who doesn't believe there's such a thing as truth. So so if if you take all of that and put it together and realize, if I understand the gospel correctly, it says that Jesus is the truth and that that is the truth that changes everything. So that's the whole point of the book. That's why I wrote Truth Changes Everything. And and I basically, most of the book is just telling stories and science, the arts, education, all these different areas of life where it was people who believed that, Mm. that Jesus is the truth, who overcame their fear and changed the entire course of history. And and let's do that. Let's transition to that because I think that is a profound way of learning. Uh, Jesus, like you said, not just embody truth. He is truth. So he taught what was true. 
you know, but he also, uh, you and I believe as a son of God, like you rightly said, is truth. You know, John 14, 6, John 8, 32, et cetera, et cetera. And so when we do have these opportunities where it's not just, you know, logically and prepositionally laying it out, you know, and being philosophical and even theological and, and referencing the scripture, let's take the truth in the scriptures and apply it in everyday life. And one thing I thought was really inspirational, and this is a, a, an effective way of teaching is, hey, I'm not just going to be telling you about why truth changes everything. I'm going to show you and demonstrate people who believe that to be the case and what they did with it. And that they can really yeah. inspire a lot of us. And I think, and when you and I are, are talking about this young generation, and we certainly see this throughout, you know, each year, right? Uh, with within the, the, the framework of, of the summer sessions at Summit, you know, 16 to 25 year olds, you know, coming through several thousand a summer, uh, you find that a lot of them who grew up in a Christian home struggling with this narrow-minded thinking, right? A lot of them haven't critically thought through it. But when you also mix into these conversations, our own personal life, hey, I'm a skeptic by nature, right? I, I don't just buy into anything and everything. I'm not always just fideistic. You know, I have, I, you know, was on a journey looking at the reliability of scripture and the resurrection, you know, really settled the issue for me. And you start telling people about the struggles and, and looking at objective truth, you know, and looking at what is arbitrary or, you know, that is relative to the individual based on what they yeah. believe. If, you know, uh -huh. the difference between vanilla and, and chocolate, that that's objectively true that I believe that, but it's relative to me based on my preference. But when it comes to the Christian faith, that's not what we're dealing with. And when you start really exploring it with these young people, and like you said, that this actually speaks to their life and gives them purpose and meaning. And you can show them solid examples of Christians from the Bible. And even people are living currently or a hundred years ago. It really does, I think, shape the narrative in this conversation. And so what I wanted to do right now is let's share with the audience, Jeff, several people. And I want to hear from you personally, because of what you were going through even as you were beginning to write and, and, and continue to write and finishing the book, who were the people that you investigated in the book? You even mentioned the book that were people who were conveyors of God's truth that were persuasive in sharing God's truth, but also intellectually sound. And they were great examples of faith because of their belief of truth. Mm, wow. Well, we could talk for hours about some of the stories that are in the book, because I, I literally cover the value of human life, mm -hmm. that if it were not for Jesus followers who believe that Jesus was the truth, we would not value human life, that we would not have science, that we would not have the arts in the way that we have them, that we would not have education in the way we have it. We would not have charity or modern medicine in the way we have it. We would not even value work the way we value it if it were not for these people. So, uh, well, let me start with science because I think a lot of people say, follow the science. You know, they, the science sort of has a pride of place uh, for a lot of people. If there's any exception to the idea that you speak your truth, they would say that it's science, right? Mm. Well, where did science come from? Uh, if you look back at the origins of modern science, you realize that it came about because people believed that there, the world is... Uh, accessible to us. We can understand it. Why can we understand it? Because it's orderly. Why? Do, how do we know it's orderly? Because it was designed. How do we know it's designed? Because there was a designer. Mm -hmm. and, and if you have all of those things put together, then you can do science. Otherwise, you can't. 
in ancient Greece, there was this question about the permanence of, of reality. Is it really permanent or is it flowing? You know, when you step in a river, are you ever stepping in the same river twice? And so they debated about this kind of thing. But they wouldn't do science because you cannot be sure that if you do an experiment at time A and an experiment at time B, that you're actually doing the experiment in the same world. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So so it was Christians who decided, no, we can, we've got this world. We can observe it. It's stable enough. It's designed. Uh, we are meant to understand it. We don't worship it, but we value it. We want to uh, know about it, and this will change the world for the better. There's so many examples of this. Uh, one of my favorites is, you know, Nicholas Copernicus, who we know was the one who kind of first figured out through his calculations that the the solar system was based around the sun, and then it, that it was not based around the Earth. Well, uh, that could be a very controversial viewpoint because all of the calculations that had been done that put the Earth at the center of it were turning out pretty well. You know, what about? with about 8% error rate, but pretty well otherwise. But it turns out that those that 8% made all of the difference. Copernicus got interested in studying astronomy because he was trying to reliably find the date of Easter. Mm -hmm. Why was he interested in that? Because he was writing a devotional book and teaching classes about the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he changed the whole course of astronomy. Leonard Euler is another good example. He, he gave the glory to God for everything that he did. This guy was so brilliant in mathematics and logic that people today, when they discover something mathematically or in the world of logic, they will still say, well, you got to name it after the first person after Leonard Euler to discover it. Otherwise, everything would be named after him. That's how brilliant he was. But he did it all for the glory of God. Uh, Robert Boyle is another good example. This, this kid, he could, have been a, he could have been a trust fund baby. He grew up in a castle that was so, uh, that was huge. It was it first built by King John. It was at one point owned by Sir Walter Raleigh. I think that's who it, uh, Boyle's father brought it from, uh, bought it from. And he said, no, I'm not going to just grow up as a rich, spoiled kid. I'm going to take my talents and use them in science. And he became the founder of modern chemistry. All of these people, uh, uh, Boyle especially, he actually wrote a devotional book called The Christian Virtuoso, How to Be a Good Natural Philosopher, Experimental Philosopher, and uh, Be a Christian. So, it, it, and it's not just one or two or three, Jason. This is the amazing thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Rodney Stark went back and looked at all of the founders of modern science. He said there were 52 of them. Only one of them was an atheist. Only one. You would never know that if you were yeah. just listening to people like Richard Dawkins these days. Mm -hmm. And you say, well, but sure, that might have been true hundreds of years ago because everybody was a Christian. You kind of had to be if you wanted to be in polite society. But John Lennox, the retired professor of mathematics from Oxford University, who's still living, said that two-thirds of the people who've ever won the Nobel Prize in science listed Christian as their affiliation. Mm -hmm. now you could, then you take education. You go from there. The top 15 universities in the world all were started as Christian institutions. Uh, in, the, in the book, I tell the story of John Wycliffe, who was a professor at Oxford University. He wanted to translate the Bible into English. English was an inferior peasant language. Yeah. And so the, the common thinking at the time among church authorities was if you translate the Bible from Latin into English, that's like translating, you know, Shakespeare into the F word repeatedly. I mean, it's just horrible. You would never do that. So uh, he, but he said, no, we got to do it. Moses heard from God in his own language. The disciples heard from Jesus in their own language. People today need to be able to hear from God in their language. 
Well, the English language was not standardized until Wycliffe used it to translate the Bible. You know, he invented 1,100 words Mm -hmm. to actually create the English language in which he translated the Bible. He established the basis of modern English, and now English is the number one trade language in the world. It all went back to this guy who just loved Jesus so much he could not help but be the best linguist that he could be. Mm. Yeah. And like you said, there's so many more that we can mention. Um, I'm, I'm curious, just, you know, knowing that a lot of people listen to the show who are probably going through uh, a trying time, an illness, perhaps. Who are some of the people that you look to? Obviously, the scriptures for one. Uh, and you're mentioning, you know, John Wycliffe, other Christians, you know, Dr. John Lennox. But who are other Christians or writers that you turn to when you were uh, going through your treatment, Jeff, that were an inspiration to you, that could be an inspiration right now to somebody who uh, could really use some some more guidance or inspiration in their lives. Mm. Yeah, I, I wasn't expecting that that line of thinking, so I'll have to c- kind of contemplate it a little bit. But d- I would say during that time, I, I spent a lot of time just looking at each one of these areas in science mm. and education, politics and others, and I, I, I went back and read these books. And some of them are written in Old English. Mm. They're very difficult to understand. Some of them are just translated out of, you know, uh, one, one language into another. But I think what I noticed along the way among all of these people was that they did not view suffering as necessarily a negative thing. Right. They viewed the suffering as as a way of drawing close to God. Uh, so an, an example is Catherine of Siena. Yes. So she's, she's very revered in the Catholic church. There's a feast day for St. Catherine. And, uh, but you look at Catherine of Siena, she had a series of visions and she wrote them out as if the Lord were speaking. And this is consistent with scripture, the, the revelations that she had, you know, about Jesus being the vine and so forth. But she said, you know, if you want to, if you want to be with Jesus, you go sit with the suffering mm. because that's where Jesus is. That Jesus is there in the suffering. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the research I did around this time was going back to the 1300s because I wanted to be able to show that truth is most interesting and compelling in times of great crisis. That's right. Well, what's a time of great crisis? Well, the Black Plague in the 1300s. A third to half of the people in Europe died. Well, what what uh, what do we know happened afterward? You you would have thought people would have said, "Well, God has clearly abandoned us. We're going to abandon us. We're going to abandon Him." But that's not what happened. Instead, people said, "No, Jesus is right here with us in the middle of our suffering, and so we will we will stick close to Him." And the whole world literally changed. The Renaissance came out of that. The Reformation came out of that. Literally, the world changed because people's response in a time of great crisis and suffering was not to turn away from God, but turn toward him. And what's amazing about that, and I just watched a documentary. It's funny you mentioned that uh, and because I love that period of time as well because when I was preparing for a, a, a series of lectures on suffering, that's one of the areas I was looking into 
kind of coinciding our COVID, which obviously Black Play, you know, nothing compares to what we were going through the last two years with COVID around the world, not to diminish the impact that it has had in some people's lives. And you know that I got it really bad and, and, and God really used yeah. that to humble me and show the love that people have for me that came to my aid and my family's aid. And there was a moment there thinking, okay, Lord, if this is it for me, mm-hmm. then I yeah. want to make sure that I'm loving you to in front of my family and the rest of the world as best I can. By, by God's grace, you're here, I'm here. Um, but when you do look at the Black Plague, though, it's significant because in some sense, the pulpit was preaching a God, a wrathful God, right? But in another, after people were paying the death tax, burying a lot of their family members, losing their properties, right? They were indebted to the lords or the knights that ran the property under the king, etc. The church, there was the church, Jeff, as you mentioned, in the time of suffering that people were going to, they were educating the families, giving them the grain, the harvest, providing food and clothing and shelter. And like you said, the Renaissance, the Reformation, and we know the rest of the history. And so we're not to downplay what, what suffering can produce in our lives for sure. And you know what? That is truly a place where one can find Jesus, who is the truth. And it's also a refining process that God can use his redemptive purposes of how he can use it for his glory. So as we close out... Um, we know there's a lot of Christians who want to quote, do more for God. They want to be able to be more uh, bold in their faith and share the truth of Jesus to people around them. And I couldn't help it. But when I, when I, and I love this, the, the title and the subtitle and the subtitle to remind people is how people of faith can transform the world in times of crisis. Now that sounds yeah. all well and good, right? <laughs> right, um, right. <laughs> when, you, when you and I consider the people that we're called to shepherd and minister to, sometimes you're like, okay, I, Lord, I, I want to give up on this person because, you know, they're just not doing anything, right? They're either just too critical hmm. or they're too passive or they're, they're not giving of themselves. You know, they're not being sacrificial. They're not trusting the power of the Holy Spirit. They're always like, well, I pray and it doesn't do anything. So I stop praying or they don't even read the Bible every day. And that's a, that's a large percentage of a lot of Christians today. At, at best, we could probably say they're superficial or nominal uh, Christians. So yeah. how on yeah. earth, as we close out, uh, Jeff, with our time together, can we encourage people who are not really motivated. They say they're Christians, they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but they're not yeah, motivated right. to change the world. I mean, it's one thing, they can't, they can't even share Christ with a, with a coworker, right? They're too afraid. Right. So how do we expect to get Christians to go out there and change the world? As you just mentioned, for centuries, we've seen Christians do that. But today in the 21st century, what, what can you share with us to, to inspire us, to convict us, that we can come together as co-laborers in Christ, as the body of Christ represented here on earth, using our spiritual gifts, how can we go forth and effectively change the world as our forefathers have done before us? Hmm. Well, it's a huge question. And so I assume we have another three hours for me to- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, tune in next time, episode two, That's right. part That's two. Right. <laughs> Will Batman fall into the vat of <laughs> That's acid? Right. No, I don't know. Uh, yeah. So just a, just a few bullet points here. The first one is 
the realm that you were given to steward. When I looked at, when I wrote this book, Truth Changes Everything, I looked at these people and I, I, I got the strong sense that none of them believed that they were changing the world. None of them did. They weren't setting out to change the world. They were setting out to be the best possible stewards of the domain they had been given responsibility for. Mm. So your home, your workplace, your neighborhood, your particular use of your gifts, whether you have a gift for writing or for music or carpentry or whatever it happens to be, the use of those gifts to mature the things and the people in your realm of responsibility, mm -hmm. that's the key. Those were the people whose lives ended up changing the world. You know, we were talking earlier about Paul's letter to Timothy. Uh, this He knew it was the last thing he would ever get to say to him. Paul did not know he was going to change the world. Timothy did not know he was going to change the world. But they were just writing and speaking the truth and how it applied in their domain. The second thing is to learn how to do that without fear. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier the research that we do at Summit Ministries. One of our research partners is the McLaughlin Group. They do national polls. You, uh, you've mm -hmm. certainly read their polls. Probably within the last week, you've seen some of the polling that they've done. In our polling, we've discovered something really unsettling. Uh, about half the people who actually are legitimately common sense truth speakers, half of them won't ever say anything because they're afraid of losing their job, they're afraid of being canceled, or they're afraid of offending someone. If half the people who know the truth don't ever say anything about it, then we can't possibly make progress on this. Uh, and I think that's why I don't think it's uncommon. I think in Scripture, if you look at the commands of God to people, and I'm just talking about the Ten Commandments, but just all of the places where God says, do or do not do this. What he says is, do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not be overcome by fear. Paul told Timothy, we do not have a spirit of fear, but one of power, of love, and of sound judgment. We have to be able to overcome our fear of communicating the truth to other people. And then the third thing is just learn to speak the truth in the context of relationship. Picture it as a DNA mm. double helix that we've got the little connecting nucleotides. You're always speaking truth and relationship connected to one another. Ask questions. Walk alongside of people. Don't see yourself as butting heads with somebody else, but walking side by side toward the truth. When we take on those three things, then it starts to change our whole perspective. We begin looking for opportunities rather than looking to avoid them. We begin asking questions about how we can display God's goodness through the things he's already given to us to steward, rather than thinking, oh, well, if only I were a millionaire, I could do it. Mm. So real quickly, give us those three things just in a nutshell. Number one was what? To change the world, um, to help people you, to change you, yeah, the world. No, right. Number one is just the st is, is steward, steward what you have, what you have right now. So the second thing is to learn to overcome fear. fear right. And then the third thing is to always do that in the context of relationships. See, and I think that that really can help, uh, Jeff. And it's that easy sometimes. It really is. A lot of times I think we make it way too difficult. But everybody listening or watching, the Holy Spirit has given spiritual gifts. And we need to faithfully execute them and entrusting him because he's the one that gives us the empowering. But as you mentioned, number two is, and we do it, you and I have talked about it. I mean, a lot of times when people see us, they think, 
why is it so easy for you to go across the room and go engage that person who's an atheist or to, you know, to have that open debate, you know, respectfully. And I tell people a lot of times I say, you know what? I probably had a thousand reasons why not to do that before I did it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, it's a pain in the neck. I mean, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. You know that the other person might be grumpy. You, they might say something to hurt your feelings. You have all kinds of reasons to not do it. Yeah. But if you have the Holy Spirit in you and you are, as Paul told Timothy, rekindling the gift of God that is in you, then you, the fire burns in you mm. in the same way that a person would see somebody, somebody sitting at lunch and they're all alone. And that, that thing inside of you that says, go sit with them, be a friend to them. It's that same thing. It becomes the thing that you cannot not do yes. when the Holy Spirit operates in you. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is so true. And I said to my own life is when you start doing with one and you pray about it and you, and you are, you are, are personally invested to say, God, use me as your vessel of honor to do something that is not comfortable, something that I don't want to do in the flesh that you reveal it to me and I obey you. The more and more that we do it, we get in that rhythm with the spirit, right? Being in the, in the, in the sphere of the spirit, Galatians chapter five, 25, great things happen. And lastly, like you said, Jeff, Hey, the relationships, your sphere of influence, your workplace, your coworkers, people in your family, people that you go to school with, people that you engage online, those are people that God has placed in your life. And if you just start impacting them, taking more time to, pray for them, ask them how you can pray for them. You know, being positive, not being so critical, you know, these things can make a difference and they multiply. So Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show. I pray that Truth Changes Everything will be a, not just a bestseller, but that people will grab that book and that it can transform their lives for the better so they can go out there and change the world as Christ has called us to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. So thank you, my friend, for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I've always enjoyed our conversations, like I said earlier, and uh, looking forward to when you come back out here and grab some barbecue and continue. Hey, we got that recorded. So that right there, I will show you if you, if you, if you fail on me, my friend. So love you, bro. We'll talk soon. Okay. Okay. Well, my friends, thank you guys for watching and listening to the show. If you have benefited by listening to the show, make sure you go to summit.org where you can get an abundance of resources that Summit produces for young people, for parents, for pastors. You can also get Jeff's new book, Truth Changes Everything, by going to summit.org. Also, if you enjoy this show, wherever you get your podcast, would you do me a favor? Would you guys take the time to leave a great review and share it out there on your platforms so we get more people listening and more people learning how to have challenging conversations. So I love you guys. Until next time, keep having those challenging conversations. 